Welcome into another great episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. My name is Jacob Rudner alongside Swamp 247 staff writer Graham Hall. And Graham, as we've done every single week, we're a day late, but as we've done every single week, we are doing our review podcast. Florida, uh, I would say, played its best game of the season in a win over Texas A&M in College Station. Uh, and I think there was a lot to talk about from this one. It was a 41-24 final score. Uh, I would say again that Gators looked significantly improved relative to their previous performances, especially if you go back towards the beginning of the year. Uh, and, and let's just start the same way we do every week, Graham. What, what were your general takeaways from this one? And, and then we'll, we'll get into some of the specifics. Before I do that, I got to say, I hope everyone sticks around to the end of the podcast because the reason we are doing this a day late is because we also want to make sure we recap Florida men's basketball season opening victory over so Stony Brook. So make sure you stick to the end of the podcast and listen to our thoughts on that as well. But I'm with you, Jacob. I think in terms of an impressive performance, when you look at all the factors, the fact that Florida was heading on the road, was facing a team that had recruiting prestige in recent years, was incorporating a lot of impressive freshmen. And yeah, they were dealing with something that every team around the country is dealing with right now, the the flu you know, sickness, fatigue, you name it, it is going around this time of year. Teams are feeling it in various levels. And Florida was facing a team that was dealing with a lot of that, had lost four consecutive games after a three and one start, but had a national championship winning coach and Jimbo Fisher, a five-star quarterback that many people thought was going to play before he ultimately was unable to suit up. But behind him, they had a guy who had started multiple games this season, an experienced quarterback. And I think that when you look at all those factors, you know, Florida hasn't necessarily done well this season in teams who have been able to do that. So I think that facing a team that had a lot of significant film on Florida to be able to make improvements and overcome those things, that that is why I, I would say it's the most impressive victory of the season, even though it wasn't too long ago that Florida defeated a top 10 team at home in Billy Napier's debut. But I think when you break that down, you look at the first game of the season between the two teams, the relative newness of what Utah could expect out of Florida. And then as well, talk about Florida's defensive, I think, deficiencies weren't really on full display against Utah. They have been the last seven weeks. And so that made this Texas a matchup, I think, a very intriguing one to see whether Florida could stop an offense that was able to accrue more than 400 yards in their previous outing. So for Florida to be able to overcome a halftime deficit, shut out the Aggies in the second half on the road and continue playing turnover free football on offense. I think it really does paint the picture that this was a very impressive victory for Florida. When you throw out the record of Texas A&M, if you had told a lot of people at the beginning of the season that they were going to go into college station after a loss to Georgia and overcome that in the first week of November, when they're sitting at 500, I think a lot of people would have been, looking at that as a huge win. But the way the season has unfolded for Texas A&M, Florida came in just, you know, a three and a half point underdog and right. manages to win that game by 17 points. And when you look at it that way, facing an SEC West team that back in February signed the number one overall recruiting class in the nation, that's a huge win for Billy Napier in my book and continues to build them some momentum as they head into the offseason and a very pivotal recruiting stretch, as well as getting Florida closer to coveted bowl eligibility, eligibility, excuse me, which will give Billy Napier and his team the opportunity to do a little bit more improving and building on the foundation that they've already established in this first year, because missing out on that time period when you're going to go into a spring, 
where you're going to lose considerable players. We just saw today that 18 guys will participate in senior day on Saturday against South Carolina, not getting that, that window to keep improving in December. That is something that would have been detrimental for this team outside of the loss. And now I'm just needing one more game to get it, whether it's against South Carolina, Vanderbilt or Florida state, that is a huge step for Florida to take. And so I do think that when you look at the entire picture, this is a very impressive victory for Florida. I would agree. Uh, I, and I think that there are some people who have tried to minimize the uh, quality of the win by pointing to things like how many players Texas A&M didn't have available for the game, whether it was the flu or an injury of some sort. Uh, the Aggies were without, I think it was 20 players or so uh, for the contest. And, and people have used that to try and minimize the win. Uh, people have pointed to Jimbo Fisher's struggles this season and the Aggies were uh, three and five, they didn't have a win uh, in the month of October, and people tried to use that to minimize the quality of the win. I think that that uh, it, it is a is a concerted effort, if that's your mindset. I, I think it's a concerted effort uh, to just not let a positive be a positive. And when I say that, I mean, I, I think that Florida played really good football in the second half of the game relative to what we've seen so far. And in a year where uh, improvement and progress is kind of more important than the win total as you know, the coaching staff tries to mold everything in its identity that they desire and you reshape the culture and, you know, you have players on the field who you didn't recruit and you didn't want, uh, it improving with that team is as important, if not more important in my opinion, than the win and loss record in year one. Uh, and, and I think I saw a lot of progress. This is what, what I would call the the massive win uh, from this game, especially in that second half. And the other thing is, and I wasn't necessarily planning on sharing this, but I think it's interesting. I was recently having a conversation with somebody uh, within Florida athletics who's familiar with, uh, you know, just sports in Gainesville. Uh, and this person made a, a point to me where, you know, a, a bad opponent and uh, being a decent team, beating a bad opponent isn't an achievement. And I don't think anybody is trying to call it one. However, uh, process in games like this still matters. The, the way that the team functions and the way that they you know, operate within their schemes and the way that they tackle and the way that they don't turn the ball over for the third time in as many games. like These are things that are important. Uh, and I would say especially so in the first year of a new coaching staff where, again, nobody's losing their job based on the record. Nobody should have really had lofty expectations for, you know, nine, 10 wins. It was never happening this year. And you and I have been saying that for months. Uh, and, and so again, just, you know, to go back to what I started with, I think that this was uh, Florida's first real quality win. Uh, and, and that puts the opponent and what was going on with the opponent aside. I, I still think it was, it was quite good. Um, let's zoom in on Florida's offense to start here. I think that this was a, a good performance again, but, from Anthony Richardson, really spectacular. I thought that uh, this was as good a game as he's had this season, uh, and that's in the conversation with the matchup against Tennessee where he had 515 yards of total offense or the game against Utah uh, where he was a spectacular runner and, and was quite efficient as a passer as well. This was up there with those games, in my opinion. How would you evaluate his overall performance and then maybe how that impacted the way Florida played offensive football in this game? I thought that with Richardson being a threat in the passing game, it really gave Florida 
a lot of wrinkles on offense of what they could do. They could get creative getting guys like Ricky Pearsall in the backfield. I think we even saw some reverses against that game, some interesting design play calls that we haven't necessarily seen before. And, and that I think is a, a good indicator of Richardson's progress because the offense is trusting him more to maybe make a few more high risk plays and not, I think, you know, go out of his way to try and make the play, play within himself, take what the defense gives him and be comfortable throwing it away. If he senses pressure rather than feeling like he every time needs to make something happen with his legs or Florida's not going to get the first down. He doesn't need to go out there and, and play, you know, quote unquote hero ball in a sense and, and have this thing hanging over him where if he doesn't have a great performance or account for multiple touchdowns, Florida's not going to have a chance at, at securing victory. I think that when you have a, dynamic backfield like what Florida has shown this season, ranking inside the top 10 in FBS in yards per carry, nearly six yards per carry, a backfield with two very impressive underclassmen and a pair of upperclassmen as well who can fill in if need be or if anyone needs a rest. I think that relying on those guys is going to be the the formula for success for Florida on offense. Um, You know, it's no surprise that to me that Richardson's best performance of the season came amid Florida's, you know, season high in rush attempts, 50 rush attempts against the Aggies. And it's worth noting that this is a Florida offense that really has not, you haven't seen them play, you know, an abundance of plays. I know that kind of sounds repetitive, but you've seen them kind of be content with slowing the pace of the game down and eating up the clock, especially in the second half and running the football, and when they can't string together first downs and you're doing that, you're going to end up, you know, only with 40, 50 plays a game, you know, upwards of 60, but you saw Florida have nearly 80 plays in that game, 50 rushes, and Richardson, think I think, threw for about 25 times in that game, and he was extremely successful when he was passing the football, and so having it so that he wasn't always having to make a throw on obvious passing downs after a first down, those are things that are going to benefit him in terms of getting him more comfortable in the pocket and as well as his overall success in the game. Especially it, it helped that they were facing a defense that was missing an abundance of starters from Fadil Diggs, who came in with three fumbles forced and I think three and a half sacks has led them in tackles for loss. Him missing the game as well as their best safety, Antonio Johnson, that certainly I think impacted maybe his confidence level going out against and facing a depleted defense. I think that it'd be ignorant to say that they weren't aware of what Texas A&M was missing. So when you go in, not really fearing the opposition, thinking you can play your best football and you aren't trying to force anything, that combination I think can result in a quarterback playing to their best. And I, I do think it's a huge reason Richardson was able to be successful as often as he was against the Aggies. Was he perfect? No, I don't think he's going to come out here and say that he had a perfect game. I don't think that if you were to ask Billy Napier or anyone within Florida's building, if they've seen Anthony Richardson's best performance yet, I don't think that they would say that's the case. But as you mentioned, the big takeaway for Florida this season, not even just from a big picture standpoint, is seeing guys make those strides, not regress, break out of bad habits, whether it's from a defensive perspective, not blowing assignments, improving the communication, understanding the role. Tackling was a big onus coming into the season based on what Florida had struggled with last year from a missed tackle standpoint. 
But for Richardson, I think that even going back to last season, one of the things he needed to absolutely work on was not zeroing in on his first read, not trusting the play call too much, reading the defense, adapting at the line of scrimmage, and then being a communicator with his, you know, 10 guys around him on offense. That is a huge thing that he even admitted after the game is something that he needs to continue working on. I don't know if many people have heard Anthony Richardson talk a lot, but he can tend to be soft-spoken at times and really isn't this, you know, dominant, boastful, vocal leader that many people are used to seeing from quarterbacks. You know, he's not the type like a Tom Brady or a Peyton Manning to go to the sideline after a bad play and rip his teammates or sure. advocate for them to be better. That's just not the kind of guy he is and not saying that he needs to become that. But when it comes to being a leader, I think that, you know, this guy who's made what double digit starts just now, I think he just made his 11th start, maybe even just his 10th. This is a guy that that is going to take him a while to improve in that regard, since it's not a natural thing for him to do. I say this all the time. It wasn't really a situation he was in. In high school, he wasn't in this high-pressure IMG, St. Thomas Aquinas, making it to the state playoffs with future NFL talent around him at the high school level. That was not him. And so much like a situation to Felipe Franks, a guy who played at the you know the 1A level and had to really make some strides the first couple of years, Richardson was not going to show up and be this refined quarterback. I use that word because we have always, when discussing him, talked about his potential the glimpses of highlight real plays, his athleticism, and what he could become if you were to put it all into one consistent package. And I think that you are starting to see more of that. And that progression, even more maybe than the scoreline of this game, is a big takeaway for me. I mean, three straight games with no turnovers, seeing him become more comfortable in the po- comfortable in the pocket, minimize his chance for bad plays, minimize his tendency to put it the ball in a position where it could result in a turnover, forcing throws, seeing him cut back on all that. If you're going to take away a bright spot from the game and you don't want to get too high on beating a Texas A&M team that now is sitting here at, what, three and six? Yep. If you don't want to be too high on that, I think you can at least agree that Richardson, based on what we've seen so far these last couple of weeks, especially against some good teams, I mean, Texas A&M was ranked seventh in the country coming into that game in passing yards allowed. They allowed under 200 per game. And for him to have success against this unit, injuries aside, I think that that absolutely, it's hard to discredit that in my mind because it's an SEC game on the road with talent on the roster from a number one class this year, number nine class last year. To be able to do that, it's hard to argue that he hasn't taken steps forward in the past month and how that bodes well for Florida's success moving forward. I think is what a lot of people have come out of this game focusing on. Sure. I I think also, you know, as I was saying before, this, this is a situation where you're looking at process as much as you're looking at stats and opponent and, and things like that. I think that this was a, a smooth performance from Richardson is how I would describe it. And we haven't seen a lot of smooth performances. We've seen, like you said, we've seen the highlights. We've seen the moments. There's been flashes. We haven't seen a complete game. We haven't seen him go, you know, quarter one through four of this confident, effective, uh, you know, quarterback who a lot of people I think rightfully believe he can be. And I think that this was the first game. And and again, I understand that it was a weekend 
Texas A&M team, but this was still the first game where he really did do that. He was he was strong in the passing game in a way that he really hadn't been so far this year. He completed 61% of his passes, which I know it, it might not blow anybody's mind, but relative to what we've seen so far this season, it's an improvement. We saw him throw for 201 yards, two touchdowns, no interception. Again, no turnover is a big deal. Uh, he has multiple scores. And then obviously the ability for him to run is, has always been spectacular. Seven rushes for 78 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, and he's tied with Montrell Johnson on the season for total touchdowns. So th this is an exceptional athlete. And, and I think the interesting thing now, Graham, is does this guy come back uh, in 2023? And and it's you know an interesting topic that was surfaced uh, this week. Montrell Johnson was actually the guy who implored Richardson to stay uh, and that becomes something that we'll have to follow. Let's let's now move on to the defense, though. This was, I think, the real standout part of the game for Florida. Not a good first half. Not a good first half at all. They they allowed uh, over 300 yards in the first half. They were down 24 uh, to 20, I believe, uh, after at the at the break, and just got ran over. Only to in the second half really turn it around. It was arguably Florida's best defensive half of the season. Texas A&M did not score a single point. They had 106 total yards of offense after the break. Uh, dominance from Florida, who also generated two turnovers, both of them fumbles, uh, one caused by princely Uman Malin, who was fantastic, and the other by Antoine Powell Ryland Jr. Uh, Graham, what did you see from this Florida defense? And, and again, just how important was the improvement half one to two? Uh, yeah, give those guys a lot of credit, especially AP, who you just mentioned, who stepped up for Brenton Cox and I thought had an uh, incredibly impactful game. I don't want to go out there and say that, you know, Brenton Cox's dismissal made Florida better. Uh, I mean, I think grandiose proclamations like that are, are not really helpful right now, especially when you're talking about such a limited sample size, just one game, because who knows? Powell Ryland Jr. could certainly have his struggles over the final three games of the season. But in this one performance, I think that you saw what a lot of people have been saying, and that having a guy who's just able to play to his assignment, even if he's not necessarily getting you know double-digit sacks, which Brenton Cox had said was one of his goals coming into the season, having a guy who's able to play his assignment and just let the you know what the play you know, gives you and play within your role. I think you saw how impactful this position can be in Florida's defense, which is much of what you and I had said during the off season and preseason camp. when we yeah. broke down the defense and talked about the overhaul under Patrick, Tony, the three, three, five, and how the Jack linebacker position was going to be used in this defense. This is one of the things we said was that when this role plays to within the defense, it's just going to be an impactful position. And they had not got, necessarily the production that they were looking for for the first half of the season. And then Cox was fantastic. You know, also give, excuse me, Powell Ryland was fantastic. And I think that, you know, another guy who was huge as well, Princely Uman Mielin, you know, in his return to his home state had a really standout performance as well. They both had a strip sack in that game. You saw them impact the game from a turnover perspective and also just the confidence they gave everyone else around them, knowing that they were not going to, be the cause for a play getting more yards than it should have necessarily. I think that gives everyone else on the defense a whole lot of confidence that if they just do their job, Florida's going to have a chance of being successful. But back to the first half there, you know, this is a Florida defense that I think they've dealt with some confidence issues this season. They 
may be thinking that this is a unit that does have its issues and they have to be cognizant of that. And maybe that has affected their confidence and their, their play and their intensity swarming to the ball and just playing, going out there playing football. Because I think that in the first half you saw a team that was a little bit hesitant, not wanting to make too many mistakes here and Haynes King. And if you were listening to the podcast last week, I unfortunately did get his name pronunciation wrong, but uh, Devin a chain. I love that last there name. I gotta be honest. There we go. He was fantastic, I thought, in the first half. And if yeah. you'd read our first look and our previews of Texas A&M throughout the week, we had said that they were kind of doing something that not many teams out there are doing from a running back perspective, which is rather than a, a by-committee approach, A-Chain was their, their leading you know, guy in many departments. Yeah. Um, pass catching back, their pri- primary running back, a guy who's going to get 15 carries a game. And when he is running successfully, he is very hard to stop. I mean, he came into that game with more than 800 yards on the ground. And so seeing him, I mean, that's as many as Montreal Johnson had last season. So seeing him have some success early was not too surprising for me, but this is why you play 60 minutes of football, because when you run one running back and when you have success early, like Texas A&M did, and then you have to keep it up, you give the defense a chance to adjust, but also you're wearing down guys a little bit more. And they didn't really have a running back who was able to step up behind a chain in this game. So I think that you saw his effectiveness decline there in the second half. And that allowed Florida to get some third down stops, get off the field, force Texas A&M to punt time after time after time. And then that just gave Florida a lot of momentum to capitalize on that. And then when the defense got that confidence back, I think you saw them play at a high rate throughout the rest of the second half. So I'm with you when I when I hear people say that this is the most impressive defensive performance of the season because it's not how you start, it's how you finish. I mean, we have seen time and time again Florida's defense come out strong with turnovers on the opening drive. I mean, I, I believe that's what happened against Utah there. And it's how you, I think, finish the game that is going to be the determinant of the perspective. And if you can ignore the first 30 minutes from Florida's defense and yeah. giving up that late score in the second quarter, this was a good performance by this team defensively. And it's a credit to how they finished the game in the second half, you know, give Patrick Tony a whole lot of credit in that defense because they have certainly heard the noise. You and I say time and time again, that this is one of the largest fan bases in the country. The, the media pressure here is certainly considerable. We've seen the analytics on social media engagement, We'd be lying if we were saying that Florida's defense and Patrick Tony have not heard it this season. That has been the case. Billy Napier has faced questions where he's had to defend Patrick Tony already this season through six games of him being his defensive coordinator. And there are some people who say that's fair and there's some who say that's unfair. But I think as you're seeing right now, this is a building year for Florida. And as long as they can continue to make improvements and make corrections, I think people can focus on that and look at that perspective rather than the mistakes they've made along the way to learn from them. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's going to do it for our review of Florida's 41-24 win to improve to 5-4 and four, uh, on the season over Texas A&M. Uh, and let's move over to a different sport. Uh, we have not yet talked about Florida basketball on the Swamp 247 podcast, but their season has officially begun. Uh, It opened with an 81-45 win over Stony Brook. Uh, Seawolves, not a very good team, uh, ranked lowly nationally. Florida, though, looked really good. And if you want to talk about uh, separating process from opponent, I would say that this was a really promising game 
to open the Todd Golden era. Uh, Graham, I will uh, start with you. Anything that stood out from the season opener? Uh, and, and then uh, I'll, I'll review a little bit as my thoughts as well. Let's talk about the actual product, the way it looked on the court, because so much I think people take away from analytics, plus minus, reading into all these statistics, turnover margin, assist to turnover ratio, you name it. Many people like to harp on individual statistics, but when you actually talk about the eye test of what Florida looked like from an offensive perspective, this is a team that has a true point guard in Kyle Lofton. They also have large wings, which outside of Flanders Fleming last year, they really lacked a guy who could attack the rim, cut, finish in transition, draw fouls. They really lacked a true scorer at the rim from the two or three guard you know, spot. And to, to see an abundance of those guys in the building right now with a true point guard, I mean, Riley Kugel, Will Richard, I mean, Kawasi Reeves, even Niles Lane. I mean, you have multiple options that Florida could put at the two and three spot. We know they're going to experiment with a variety of rotations here, but the options that they have, I think, just dwarf what Florida had last year in that regard. And then the offense just looks like it is more confident and understands where the ball is supposed to go. They understand spacing, I think, because they are not necessarily mismatched from a defensive perspective. I think when you combine all of that, man, it's just a much more appealing product to watch, right? Sure. And I think that was one of the, how do I say this? Maybe the superficial complaints about the Mike White era was that even though they were at times competitive and would win nine games in the SEC, 10 games, 11 games, I mean, made four consecutive SEC tournaments. I mean, NCAA tournaments. It's not necessarily, it wasn't a total failure of the Mike White regime, but I think that most people consistently made the case that when it wasn't pretty, it was downright ugly. I mean, you're not going to, I think, see as ugly of basketball from this Todd Golden team this year. And when we just spent the past 20 minutes talking about building a foundation in year one and improving on things and making sure that you set the foundation and just show gradual improvement to show this team already to see this team already looking marginally better from an aesthetic perspective, but then to see them handle a team that they faced last year, they faced Stony Brook here in Gainesville last year. And in that game, you know, Florida only won by 24. I say only, but if you go back, Stony Brook made some great second half adjustments against the Gators and Florida really didn't close that game. Well, so much so that it was a one possession game it was decided by one possession in the second half. I mean, Florida, I think only outscored Stony Brook 35 to 33 or something like that over the final 20 minutes. And so to see this team come out to a hot start and close the game well, while getting younger guys in against a team, you know, from New York that always finds diamonds in the rough, it was an impressive win. And that's even before getting into, and I'll turn this over to you, a lot of the advanced analytics, how they fared, and Torvik and yeah, you know, that is, there are many ways to come away impressed from the season opening win, even though the opponent was just Stony Brook. And, and, and this is, it was a good transition. This is one of those ways. I think that Florida performed, uh, I would go as far as to say exceptionally well in this game relative to matchup analytics and just the, 
advanced stats, which frankly, if, if you're a fan of Florida basketball, then you should be aware that this is one way that these coaches choose to evaluate their team. They're very analytically minded. Uh, they're very open to these kinds of things. So I guess uh, what better way for us to evaluate them than the same way the coaches will, and we'll use uh, some of these analytical sources. So we can start with Torvik. Uh, Florida finished the game with a 99 game score. That is hard to do. Uh, game score is very simple. It's it's really just you know point differential uh, throughout the game. Florida maintained an average lead of 16 points basically uh, throughout the contest, which again, uh, you know, regardless of an opponent, is a very hard average lead. Uh, considering just the pace of play and you're facing an opponent that was a division one team. Uh, you know, you want to jump over to Ken Palm. Ken Palm says similar things about how good this performance was for Florida. Uh, through one game for everybody nationally, pretty much, uh, the Gators' defensive performance in this contest ranked 29th nationally, according to Ken Palm, and 36th in offensive uh, efficiency. So, uh, again, a great performance. And I think that there were several standouts. Uh, from this game, Alex Fudge, who you mentioned, scored 16 points off the bench, uh, was extremely effective. A guy who was able to kind of be a zone buster. Uh, Stony Brook played 40 minutes of zone in this game. And a guy of Fudge's athleticism and talent uh, and, and his ability to create shots from multiple levels is an easy way to get past that. He did that successfully. Uh, Colin Castleton, Florida's preseason first team All-SEC center, was very good, scored 13 points. Uh, five rebounds, three assists, uh, four blocks, and one steal in just 26 minutes of action. So he's off to a hot start. And then the team's highest graded player overall from the game, uh, Will Richard, newcomer from Belmont, uh, 14 points on a four of five shooting performance, including two of three from beyond the arc. He had three rebounds and two steals in just 20 minutes. So uh, this is a team, Graham, that I think is really deep. I think that they have pieces. One area, however, that is not so deep, but we saw play extremely well in this game is the front court. They they really only use, uh, you know, three players somewhat regularly, and Jason Jatobo much less than the first three. The first three being C.J. Felder, uh, Colin Castleton, and Alex Fudge. The group performed great. They they contributed. I believe off the top of my head, it was 24 of Florida's 38 first half points came from their fours and fives. Uh, and and it should be noted that Jason Jatobo did not even score in the game. So that was that was you know more than half of the team scoring from three different players. Uh, however, they, that's it. They don't have any depth beyond those guys. Unlike in the front in the backcourt, excuse me. Uh, you've seen this before. This this was kind of the case for Florida last year, I guess. Uh, what are your thoughts on that situation and just where Florida could be? You know, in a couple weeks, depending on how the situation unfolds. Yeah, I talked with you about this after the game, and just to tell everyone here, I, I thought a massive takeaway was having a full front court that has options. You know, at the end of last year, the way that things finished for Florida, Colin Castleton, Jason Jatobo, CJ Felder, and Anthony DeRuji were all injured by the end of the year. And, you know, Anthony DeRuji couldn't even go in the SEC tournament. CJ Felder was dealing with a hip issue for the entire rest, entire rest of the year. I think that when you have bigs who can finish around the rim, but maybe more importantly, pass well out of the post. I mean, <laughs> that is just hard to overcome. When you have a guy like Colin Castleton who can finish around through contact, 
through the double team, but he also is able to pass and kick out to the wing for open shooters. And you have a team that understands cutting, moving without the basketball. And that is a very tough thing to overcome. You really need to rely sometimes on extremely sound defensive play or just relying on guys to miss shots. And we've seen that this team has a lot of guys capable of shooting from outside, you know, several of the ones we just mentioned, three of those forwards there, CJ Felder, Colin Castleton, and Alex Fudge are all comfortable spacing the floor. If their assignment does not trail and defend them outside from long range, they're comfortable knocking down that shot. But when you have a guy like Colin Castleton, Alex Fudge, who's a three-point threat, but also can score around the rim, that is just very, very tough to overcome, especially when they can play together like Colin can with CJ and Alex Fudge. So I think you absolutely have a situation where, not to say that this team is going to go as the the front court does, but their skill sets, they need to stagger them at times and make sure that they remain healthy throughout the entire season. And, and whether that is maybe having a little bit deeper rotation than Todd Golden would like, I don't know if that's necessarily the key, but it's a long season. You know, you're going to play, if you make it as far as you want, you're going to play nearly, you know, 35, maybe 40 games if you go that far into the tournament. And you need to have guys who are not fatigued by February. And maybe that includes playing Will Richard 20 minutes a game. And then maybe another sure. night you end up playing him at the four and giving someone else a rest. How they do that, I think, is something very interesting to watch. But I think that they have the options to do that. But when two of those guys are playing at a high level, and Florida's knocking down shots, playing solid defense, playing with an edge, I think you saw that this team can be extremely, extremely effective. And I think they're going to surprise a whole lot of people. Last thing I got to say, we have seen, I think, a lot of people sleep on Will Richard. And that always makes me, you know, be self-analytical in a sense and think about how could we have maybe covered preseason and their arrivals a little bit differently. But I don't think anyone thought that Will Richard was going to come in here and be not only Florida's best, player, but also their best shooter, their most consistent outside shooter. And I definitely don't think that many people thought that this is someone who could play the three or the four for Florida. Many people thought that this was someone who was six foot three, six foot four, but it he was is, on. You know, over it was on the Swamp Two Four Seven message board. Sorry to interrupt. You. It was. We, we no, it was. There. It was. We, it we was. were on this one. Absolutely. I just maybe when I see that when we're reporting something that maybe doesn't become the consensus perspective, sometimes people need to actually see that unfold before they can actually be like, "Oh, sure. so this is what they were talking about." But we had talked about Will Richard was a guy that Florida's coaching staff thought that he was highly underrated. There was a reason that they. In the transfer portal, went for this guy first, right? I mean, he is the first one to commit to the Todd Golden era. And when you look at it that way, going after him first, getting a guy from Belmont, I think it makes a whole lot of sense right now because he is a mismatch at several spots on the floor. Right. He's going to be bigger than his assignment if he's playing the two, and he's going to be quicker than his assignment if he's playing the four. So I think that when you look at how this guy can be used in a variety of ways with his long-range shooting ability – his defense, his ability to finish through contact. This is someone that I think a lot of people are going to look back by the end of the year and think like, how did that guy, one, wind up at Belmont out of high school, but two, not get a little bit more buzz from not just the local media. I know that we sit here and say at Swamp 247, we have been, you know, we've been banging this drum for a minute here about Will Richard and also 
along with Alex Fudge. And I think a lot of people understood what they were getting in Kyle Lofton from a polished point guard perspective. But for Richard, I still don't think people have understood how dynamic he can be. And that was on display in just his 20 minutes on Monday. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think that uh, there's, there's a reasonable amount to look forward to, I think with this team. And I'm, I'm not trying to beat the drum that it's going to be, you know, the, the best team that Florida's seen in years are going to make some deep run in the tournament. I let's not, let's not get me wrong, I, but I do think that this is a talented group. I think that this coaching staff has assembled uh, a deep team. I think that they've done a good job, you know, Normally, I wouldn't comment on what appears to be the quality of the coaching and the game management after just one game. But one of the benefits of Todd Golden being generous with media access is we really watched them practice and prepare for the final month leading up to the season. Every single practice we were involved in. We we sat there and watched how things went and took notes. And so I, I think that it's we've we've seen the process and the process has looked very promising uh, and the opening result was as well. So I, I would say certainly that there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, and uh, we will have coverage of all of it. So, well, I got to I got to jump yeah. in here real quick. You know, we also okay. forget, we did, we talk also often about football, you know, Billy Napier talked about Ricky Pearsall missing a significant amount of fall camp and maybe how that affected Florida's um, ability to put him in ideal situations because he missed so much camp and arrived late here. We forget that Will Richard, I mean, narrowly avoided a very significant knee injury that kept him off the floor for the first two weeks of camp here. And so maybe that did a little bit to quell the buzz and excitement for this guy because we didn't really get that many glimpses of seeing him in live action scrimmage. But what we'd heard behind the scenes, what he'd done in the offseason workouts, kind of, I think, negated any concerns that he wouldn't be able or he'd be behind or wouldn't be able to pick it up when he did return, I think it's just, it's worth mentioning that this guy was you know out for half of camp and hasn't really looked like he's missed a beat here in terms of what he's able to do and his understanding and, and as well as his athleticism, you know, they, they were very close to losing this guy for a potentially significant amount of time. If, if that injury is a little bit worse here and for him to be able to return and be an impact player immediately, I think that you ha you can't undersell that. It, it absolutely is worthy of praise, even though it's just been one game. Yeah, no, uh, well said. Uh, I think that's going to do it, though, for this episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. Lots of things to kind of keep track of here. Uh, if you're a Florida fan, and for that reason, we would encourage you to head on over to swamp247.com for all things Florida sports coverage. We've got fall ball baseball going on right now. We've got coverage of that. We've got basketball season started. Uh, that's all over the site. And obviously, uh, Florida football is in full swing, both on the recruiting trail and on the field. So we have coverage of all of those things. In addition, though, to our written content that you can read, you are going to want to get onto the Swamp 247 message board where we also drop some knowledge uh, about these programs, uh, you know, going beyond uh, exactly what we report maybe in our normal stories. And so if you really want the full experience, you're going to want to subscribe to swamp247.com. And last thing, if you are listening to us on YouTube or Spotify, we appreciate you there too. Uh, YouTubers, we hope that you can uh, like and subscribe this video uh, and drop a comment. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions, we love answering them. Uh, and maybe at some point in the near future, we'll do a, a Q&A type podcast. So if, uh, if that's something that people are interested in, 
then uh, start dropping some comments with questions and we will uh, see what we can do. But for this episode, that's going to do it. And we will see you next time on the Swamp 247 podcast. For Graham Hall, I'm Jacob Rudner. See you later.